Hello everybody, my name is Andy and I would like to welcome you to Season 3 of UFOs and Other Paranormal Stuff. Hello everyone, welcome again to Season 3 of UFOs and Other Paranormal Stuff. I would like to thank all those people that sent me messages in the uh, downtime that we had in the off-season. I thank you also for watching and listening to the podcast episodes, the Calvin UFO uh, Special Edition, the Summerton Man Update, uh, your stories of course, and the uh, Pluckley video that we did, uh, me and uh, the niece and nephew. They enjoyed making it just as much as I enjoyed making it and putting it out to you. Of course, yes, it was for kids, but it was a bit of fun, you know. They enjoyed it, they loved it, and glad to see that you did as well. A couple of weeks ago, I put a question out on social media, and I received literally thousands of replies. Literally thousands, although I didn't count them all. Anyway, what is that question I hear you ask? The question is this. Belief. A very interesting word indeed. It causes great things, but also terrible things too. People can believe things to such a degree that they will ignore facts, other people and basically everything that goes against their beliefs. My question to you is, why do you think that so many people throughout history would rather not believe anything to do with ufology, the possibility of alien life on Mars or anywhere else in the universe. That question could be extended to other paranormal stuff too. There are literally thousands of video clips out there of UFOs. Thousands have reported UFOs or lights or something very odd in the sky. The infamous black vault is full of these interesting reports. Many have reported alien abductions, ghost ships, poltergeists, phantom this or that, time slips, etc. Yet many people still disbelieve it and completely shun those who believe in UFOs, ghosts and the rest. Why? What makes them do that? And like I said, the replies were many. Phil said, the book UFOs by Leslie Keane says millions believe in God, but there is no evidence, no proof. However, there is lots of proof of UFOs exist, but people refuse to believe. Bino said, belief is meaningless. Proof, on the other hand, is very useful. Nick followed that up by saying, fear. And Alan said, finally, because they are scared of the truth. Andrew said, cover-up it's not just our government it's a world cover-up it starts back in the 14th century with the church suppressed reports of flying objects the aliens already have a, has a strong arm on their secrets meaning they will do anything to keep it people who did still deny the ufos will have a rude awakening one of these days when time runs out for us all recently have concluded that shadow people, men in black and the UFOs are all hooked together in some way. I think rather to be, I think rather be an idiot not knowing about all this stuff. I would rather have it that we are the chosen ones of God and he will protect us. But I can't. It's not true. Debbie said, 
I know many religious people, including family members, that don't believe that there could be the possibility of life in other galaxies. It's truly hard for some to have an open mind, maybe out of fear of the unknown. Sometimes you're taught one way of thinking, one belief. For me, the universe is enormous and the possibilities are endless. Alyssa writes, I've believed in all of this from the time I was a kid, as far back as I can remember. Used to lay or lie there, hoping a UFO would take me and show me the wonders of the universe. I saw my first ghost at 19, when my mother unexpectedly passed away. She came to me after the graveside service. Parallel dimensions... I can recall a few times being in the house completely alone and I would sometimes out the corner of my eye catch a quick glimpse of another person. No, not my reflection in the mirror, lol. The world is full of wonder and mystery for us all to see, but some people are just afraid of the unknown. I think it's pretty awesome and amazing. You'll have a phenomenal day. Thank you, Elisa. Kevin writes, for me, it's because people can't see or think beyond the bubble space in which they operate. Home, drive to work, go to the local store, and maybe a day's drive for vacation. On the other hand, I do study the findings of the research and study a little, uh, and study a little of what we do know and can prove. This leaves me with no other option except that in our universe and possible multiverses, it is beyond ignorance to think we only we exist. Linda said, I think most people actually do believe. You have to be able to open your mind to this. Very difficult when for thousands of years we have been conditioned by lawmakers, education systems and religion to believe that this was witchcraft, trickery and the work of the devil. Inwardly, most people have a connection but it is easier to turn away and not face ridicule. Helen said, I think people don't want to believe because it scares them to think of something or someone that looks nothing like us and there are loads of negative films made about alien invasion just and, uh, just and the same people not wanting to have faith that God is real. I've seen things I can't explain in this world, in the sky and in the spirit world. I've heard things late at night walking home that sounded like it was covering the whole sky above me even though I couldn't see anything that scared me more than anything else that I can't explain. Justin writes, that's a simple answer. Operation Mockingbird and Project Blue Book both verified and now unclassified with purposeful designs to control media on all levels to create a UFO stigma. Because you're right, taking away all facets of things and objectivity and objectively asking are we the only ones is in no way a silly question. And I propose that it's even ridiculous to believe that we are, but that's not what the government wanted. One can literally download and read documents themselves or check them out. And he's put a link on here to a YouTube uh, video. The CIA started the UFO stigma. Check that out. Marta writes uh, what a lot of other people have uh, said. In my opinion, religion standing in the way here. Traditional religious beliefs stands for humans 
being the most important creature in the universe. A couple of religious people I know who said that extraterrestrial life is impossible because nothing is written about it in the Bible. Helen replied to her by saying, Man's Bible tell of the, of the Watchers, which are meant to be aliens. Jessica chimed in with her answer, saying, I believe the likelihood of alien life. Years ago, whilst working as a mobile security guard, I was convinced a ball of light I kept seeing was following me on my patrol. However, it could have been a bright star, and I convinced myself it was a UFO. My way of thinking, if we were created by a Big Bang then why not other intelligent life elsewhere in the universe from the Big Bang? If we were created by God, as I believe, then it is likely God created other intelligent life across the universe. Interesting point there, Jessica. Les says, I ran into this just the other day from my daughter who was visiting me. She is 29 and does not believe in UFOs, ghosts or anything else. I respect her beliefs. I have at least 40 recordings of objects that I have personally caught, plus other documents. She basically refused and said anything can be faked and not to believe. She thought I was gaslighting after our discussion. She asked if my research made me happy and I told her very much so. I guess my point with some non-believers just need to have their own experience. Now on the other side of this, I was doing a seminar on the subject and I was showing someone my videos and she started to cry as I asked her what, uh, why, why and she said they are real, they really are real and I said yes and she said Les, I stand corrected, your evidence is awesome. Fred said, take a look at what the new James Webb telescope is discovering and tell me that there is no probability of other life forms out there. I would guess, yes, there is, rather than no, there isn't, any day proof or no proof. Trisha has told me, I know we are not alone because I have been blessed with two encounters, 13th of July 2019 and the 13th of July 2020, which happens to be my birthday. I was alone, no phone to record anything. Doesn't matter to me though, I'm lucky to be given the truth. We are most definitely not alone. Sophia said this, because believers are made to look like idiots. This is personal experience. Also, there are so many fake photos and videos that it ruins the truth. Well, I've proof a few times in videos where many, many people also witnessed the UFOs. I've seen two crash sites cleared totally in less than 30 minutes of it happening. I've proved things only, only for idiots to pull me down, saying I'm crazy, and then continued to harass myself and my son, who also witnessed many things. But this just helps the authorities. These idiots ridiculing people who have their proof and stories. They will never admit anything and they just play their pathetic games trying to cover up and make witnesses look crazy. Well, shut me up and call me what you like. I've proof and... 
there are many, many others like me too. UFOs are visiting here regularly. It's about time the truth emerged. She went on to say, I've videos of me and my friend in my car at 5am a few weeks ago and the UFO started off triangular and changed shape. It affected the animals over the forests too and the jet came. It turned into a circle and went blue, then just shot off, left the jet. My son and many others in the daytime, same place people were jumping out of their cars trying to get on video. He did and his wife, you... UFO and two fighter jets arrived again and were left. Then there's a reservoir down from me. A huge disc crashed further on from the reservoir. Again, many people witnessed this too. Then a smaller craft crashed, burnt everywhere, the grass around the reservoir. It was cleared, roads blocked off as before, and taken away immediately. They said it was a satellite. Lol. There's so much activity around this area, seriously. The people who come to clear the sites are extremely rude and you can't get near the sites. They come from nowhere and so fast that these people. Then afterwards, we see the usual emergency services. There's nothing there by the time they come. The fire brigade just deal with the burnt sites, making sure the fires are out but they made people go in their houses and the men who arrive first are all in suits but like bouncers they are made uh, sorry they make sure nobody can get near alex said brilliant question i believe that people want the most simple answer and that's it they live in a little box so no matter how bizarre or strange something is say a credible sighting or mysterious disappearance that science and logic simply cannot explain it, that there is no supporting evidence that it was a hoax or that there is, isn't a simple explanation that can explain it away. They will not acknowledge that maybe, just maybe, there is a paranormal explanation for it. My boss is a cold, hard sceptic. I was retelling him some of the missing 411 cases. One in particular was when a young kid vanished literally metres away from his family. He showed up dead 75 miles away, two days later, something like that. My boss absolutely would not accept that there could be a paranormal-based answer to it. He was adamant that someone had abducted him, and somehow, over two days, carried him over the mountains and ravines. In two days? It's bonkers, eh? And they apply this logic to UFO sightings too. They cannot accept it. They cannot accept that it might be ET visitors or some sort of intergalactic drone. It will always be something mundane and easily explainable. Thus, they live in a box. You see, I told you there was many replies. But it is very interesting though, isn't it? People will still have a strong belief in certain things and fully believe what that thing is telling them to believe and can absolutely not accept the possibility of anything else being true especially if it conflicts with their belief they are almost forced to have a closed mind and in my opinion the whole world population has been forced to have a closed mind for over the last three thousand years due mostly to religion and then politics forcing them to close it even to the point of conflict in their religion 
I was watching a YouTube video the other day which featured a pastor attempting to debunk what was clearly a UFO sighting as told in the Bible in Ezekiel chapter 1. Now I've spoken about this uh, before in the podcast so you will find it on a previous episode. I can't remember exactly which one off the of, uh, top of my head. But as well as trying to explain the UFO away, the, the pastor says the immortal words that conflict with the logic, common sense and his own Bible. He said that UFO, the UFO described in the chapters was the glory of God. It was not unidentified flying objects. It was not intelligent creatures from another planet in another galaxy that has come to Earth and it is not military experiments either. Now, yes, probably not military experiments way back then. See, God is from somewhere else in the universe. That actually is what Christians believe. God is from heaven. Heaven is not a few miles away down the M40. The Bible states that by the fact that it was God who created earth, the universe and everything in it, you can't do that if you're not if you are from earth. You can't really do that if you're not intelligent either. Only do religious people tell us that the Bible is the word of God and you cannot question the word of God, but they fail to understand that God who created the earth, the universe and everything in it, did not actually write the Bible. It was written by men, not God. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, not God. So why do they, and people in general, have to cling to their beliefs as if their lives depended on it? Please do enter the conversation. That post is still up on my Facebook page and group. Or send me an email by the way of contact form on the website www.ufosandops.com That's www.ufosandops.com While you're there, don't forget to have a look at our little shop for some stocking fillers for Christmas maybe, or Jules, or whatever you like to call it. Ladies and gentlemen, today's show is all about phantom vehicles. That's right, phantom vehicles. Haunted cars, buses, ghosts, trains, spectral boats, uh, the Flying Dutchman, Number 7 bus, James Dean's car and all the myths and legends that go with them. Some of these stories are well known, others are not. The first on our list is something called the Silver Pelen, uh, the ghost train of Stockholm. In the 1960s, the Stockholm Metro bought a few unpainted second-hand train carriages for their use on the, on the Stockholm Underground system. While they were being tested, they were left in their unpainted aluminium state. Being that these carriages uh, were easy to maintain, they were going to be used on the expanded system. All of the trains on, in use on the system in those days were painted green and so the sudden appearance of a silver carriage came as a surprise to the travelling public in Sweden's capital city. As they were being tested, there was no advertising or other posters inside the carriages which gave them that eerie atmosphere. To that was the fact that these trains were, as mentioned, second-hand and very dirty and unkept. The public did not like these carriages and would rather attempt to get on board a more busier later train if the unclean silver peelant train turned up. This meant that only a few people would board. Rumours started to swell that those who did board uh, the silver train would never be seen again. This was bolstered by the fact that some of those few who boarded the train did in fact 
go missing and were never seen again. This understandably led to the complete disuse of the train by the travelling public and then to the carriages being taken out of service. Many people travelling late at night have said that they have seen this now very old and out of place looking train trundle through the stations with people on board that very much resemble those who went missing 50 plus years ago. The metro expanded and built a station at a place called Shumlinge, spelled K-Y-M-L-I-N-G-E. So I hope I've pronounced it correctly. My Swedish is not up to date. And that was to service an area that was expected to be developed. That area was never developed, and so the station, already built, was never opened for passenger use. It was left bare, and very soon rumours of hauntings started to spread. Stories came about that the station was only used by spirits, as this station was built on the surface, with a footbridge taking the public across the tracks. Some of the local residents even recently reported seeing people boarding a rather lonely, mostly empty-looking, out-of-date, old silver train resting at one of its platforms. Whether these sightings are real or not, we may never know, but whenever officials revisit the idea of actually opening the station at Ximlange, it is always met with stern opposition. Maybe that is because people do not the local do not want the local Greenland uh, to be destroyed. Maybe it's because the sightings and stories of Shimlunge Station and the old silver train of the dead that visits it are true. Staying on the subject of public transport, I will now take you back in time to London in 1934. The f- city's famous for its fog was about to become famous for something completely different. A man saw a car driving along an empty road one night when all of a sudden a bus appeared driving erratically. The car driver had to take evasive action to avoid the bus hitting his car. He swerved but hit a pillar and was killed on impact. The witnesses said the bus disappeared immediately. The Phantom Number no. 7 London bus had made its first appearance. Many more reports of this dangerous bus were made, with witnesses stating that the bus had no driver, was always on the wrong side of the road and moving at very high speed. Sadly, the result was always the same. Any driver who had the misfortune to encounter the Ghost Number no. 7 bus would try to steer clear of it and end up crashing into something. Most of the cases resulted in them dying on the spot. The bus, a typical red and white London bus, featured a large number 7 painted onto its side, along with the company's logo. When the ghost bus sightings uh, became more frequent, the company changed its name and logo so the public would no longer have any suspicions about the company causing these accidents. All of the buses that the company owned had their logos changed accordingly but one rogue bus seemingly belonged to no company and did not change. And it never did, right up until its last known sighting in 1990. It would always appear at the same place, on St Mark's Road in Notting Hill, West London, very near to the junction of Cambridge Gardens, and usually around the same time of 1.15 in the morning. 
it would always disappear without a trace. The only evidence that suggested the horror bus had made an appearance were the accidents that were either witnessed or found the next morning to have happened for no reason at all. At first the police were reticent to get involved in in the talk of the phantom bus, but as the casualties began to mount up, they decided they needed to get involved. They conducted detailed interrogations of all the eyewitnesses and found that the locals had seen this spectral vehicle on the road and had apparently seen it at a depot, it disappearing a few minutes after it was seen. that the vehicle had been seen by so many people, it could not be attributed to insanity of individual witnesses. Some residents thought the, bus, the ghost bus nicknamed Night Night, that's Night with an N, then Night with a K, chose its victims deliberately. Unfortunately, no hard evidence was gathered on the mysterious bus, but even though nothing could be found on it, the authorities decided to help car drivers by improving visibility of the junction of St Mark's Road and Cambridge Gardens. They widened the road a few metres and made repairs to the road, and as soon after that, the sightings of the phantom bus ceased. That said, there are still many residents who refuse to drive on that haunted road in West London. And I couldn't blame them. Now, phantom vehicles are of course not just for the wheeled variety. From the Lady Lovibond, seen off the Kent coast every 50 years after being deliberately sunk in 1748, to the Yong Yu Sing, Number 18 found drifting near Midway Island in 2021 with no one on board. It is fair to say that the world's oceans and seas have more than their fair share of mysterious phantom transport travelling on their waves. None more mysterious than the Mary Celeste and the Flying Dutchman. Mary Celeste, often referred to as the Marie Celeste, incorrectly by the way, was a merchant brigantine that was found adrift near the Azores in the Atlantic Ocean on the 4th of December 1872. Originally named Amazon, the ship appeared to have bad luck from the very start. The maiden voyage in June 1861 took the ship to the five islands to collect cargo of timber for the passage to London in the UK. But soon after the ship was loaded, Captain McClellan fell ill. His condition worsened and he died when the Amazon returned to Spencer's Island in Canada. John Nutting Parker took over the reins and captained the ship for the rest of its voyage to London. Unfortunately, Amazon encountered more problems almost as soon as it had departed, colliding with fishing equipment just off Eastport in Maine. After the ship left London for its return journey, it hit a brig in the English Channel and the brig sank. Amazon went a few years without incident until 1867, when it was driven ashore during a storm. It was so badly damaged that the owners abandoned the Amazon as a wreck. However, the ship was eventually bought by Richard W. Haynes, who restored it, made himself captain, and registered the ship in New York as an American vessel. It was there where this ship was to be given the name that would go down in maritime history. Mary Celeste. Some years later, after refits and additions, the ship was placed under the charge of Captain Benjamin Briggs of Wareham, Massachusetts. 
On the 20th of October 1872, Briggs oversaw the loading of the ship's cargo, 1,701 barrels of alcohol. His family joined him a week later. The Mary Celeste left Pier 50 on the East River in New York City on the 5th of November. The ship left for New York Harbour. The weather was uncertain. Little did anyone know that they would never see any of the crew of the Mary Celeste ever again. Digracia, another brigantine, this time of Canadian origin, was nearby in Hoboken, New Jersey, awaiting its cargo of petroleum. Its captain, David Morehouse, a highly experienced and respected seaman, had dined the previous night with a friend of his, Captain Benjamin Briggs, of the Mary Celeste. De Gracia departed for its voyage to Gibraltar, on the 15th of November, following the general route of the Mary Celeste. 1pm on the 4th of December, the helmsman of Digracia reported to Captain Morehouse that there was a vessel six miles distant and it was coming their way. The ship's erratic movement and strange sail settings led Morehouse to believe that something was wrong. He was right. The two ships got closer and he could see no one on deck of the strange ship. There was no reply to his signals. Morehouse sent his first mate, Oliver DeVoe, and his second mate, John Wright, in a boat to investigate this strange ship. They discovered that the ship was indeed the Mary Celeste, and after checking all over, that the ship was absolutely deserted. Sails partly set and in a poor condition, some of them were missing altogether, Rigging was damaged, was damaged and the ropes were hanging loose over the side of the ship. The main hatch was secure, but strangely all the other hatches were open. The ship's only lifeboat was missing. There was water in the hold, up to 3.5 feet deep to be exact, which apparently was not a problem to a ship of Mary Celeste's size. The two found the ship's log. The last entry dated 8am on the 25th of November, nine days previous. The entry recorded the position of the ship as just off the Santa Maria Island in the Azores, 369 nautical miles from the position that De Gracia found her. The captain's quarters were wet and untidy due to both wind and water getting in via the windows and the skylights. Other items belonging to Briggs were scattered about the cabin, but most of the papers were missing along with the captain's navigational equipment. There was plenty of provisions in the ship's stores, and the equipment in the galley was stored away nice and neatly. No food was under preparation, there was no sign of fire on the ship, and no sign of violence either. Everything indicated an orderly departure by means of the missing lifeboat. But why had they departed the ship? Captain Morehouse, upon hearing DeVos and Wright's report, took the Mary Celeste to Gibraltar, 600 miles away, splitting the De Gracia's crew between that ship and the Mary Celeste. The Mary Celeste was impounded as soon as it reached port by the Vice Admiralty to prepare for salvage hearings. But what had happened to make the Mary Celeste a ghost ship? Where had the crew gone? Why had they gone? There are several possible explanations to this. Frederick Solly Flood, the British Attorney General in Gibraltar, smelled a rat on learning 
about the particulars of this case. He suggested that the crew of the Mary Celeste had gotten drunk on the cargo, remember the alcohol that was loaded on, and murdered Captain Briggs and his family, but that fact was soon debunked by the fact that the cargo was in fact denatured alcohol, which would cause violent sickness before complete intoxication. After that idea was proved incorrect, Solly Flood then accused Captain Morehouse and his crew of murder and piracy. They were eventually cleared of all suspicion. I mean, yeah, they murdered the crew and then took the ship back to port where they were going to be found out. Not going to work. These accusations by Solly Flood caused a lot of publicity about the mystery of the Mary Celeste. And it wasn't long until a story in a newspaper ended up becoming the short story J. Habakkuk Jepson's Statement, one of the earliest works of a man called Arthur Conan Doyle. In that work, Doyle misspelled the ship's name, calling it the Mari Celeste. Although that was fictional, his version of the story became widely repeated as factual. Some even decided that the infamous creature of the deep, the Kraken, was to blame for the downfall of the Mary Celeste's crew, apparently making them abandon ship as it climbed out of the sea only to plop back into the sea once all of the humans, its dinner, were huddled aboard the ship's lifeboat. Of course, alien abduction was another later reason why the crew were missing, although what aliens would want with a lifeboat and the captain's navigational equipment is beyond me. But they took it anyway. The mystery of the ship Mary Celeste is startling since it appears to be one of those mysteries which no human ingenuity can penetrate sufficiently to account for the abandonment of this vessel and the disappearance of her master, family and crew, said US Consul in Gibraltar, Horatio Sprague. He was right. This is a mystery that has never been explained. That said, on the 16th of May 1873, a newspaper in Liverpool in the UK reported that two rafts had washed ashore on the coast of Spain. Corpses and an American flag were lashed to them. This was not investigated at the time, but it has been suggested that these were the last remains of the crew of the Mary Celeste. If it had been investigated, it might have led to the explanation of what happened and why, and maybe the name Mary Celeste would not have gone down as one of the most famous ghost ships in maritime history. That said, Mary Celeste does have competition in the field of most well-known ghost ship, and that is from a ship possibly more deserving of the title than Mary Celeste, and that is the legendary ghost ship, the Flying Dutchman. First ever reference to the Flying Dutchman was made in Travels in Various Parts of Europe and Asia and Africa during a series of 30 years and upward, a rather long-titled piece by a piece of work by John MacDonald. He wrote, The weather was so stormy that the sailors said they saw the Flying Dutchman. The common story is that the Dutchman came into the, in, into the Cape in distress of weather and wanted to get into the harbour, but could not get a pilot to conduct her and was lost, and that ever since, in very bad weather, her vision appears. Certainly a lot of ands in that quote. Of the Flying Dutchman is likely to have originated in the 17th century in the golden age of the Dutch East India Company, 
and when Dutch maritime power was at its height. According to the legend, if hailed by another ship, the crew of the Flying Dutchman might try to send messages to land or to people long dead. Sightings made in the 19th and the 20th centuries have reported that the ship glowed with a ghostly light. In maritime folklore, the sighting of the, fr of the Flying Dutchman is to be a portent of doom. There have been many sightings of the Flying Dutchman in the 19th and the 20th centuries. Wikipedia states a well-known sighting was made by Prince George of Wales, the future King George V, while on a three-year voyage during his late teens in 1880. He was with his brother Prince Albert of Wales and their tutor John Neil Dalton. The temporarily, they temporarily shipped in HMS Inconstant after the damaged rudder was repaired on their original ship, the Bashante. By one of the princes reads thus. July 11th at 4am, the Flying Dutchman crossed our bows. A strained red light as of a phantom ship all aglow, in the midst of which light the masts, the spars and the sails of a brig 200 yards distant stood out in the strong relief as she came up on the port bow, where also the officer of the watch from the bridge clearly saw her, as did the quarterdeck uh, midshipman, who was sent forward at once to the forecastle, but on arriving there was no vestige or nor any sign of whatever of any material ship was to be seen, either near or right away to the horizon, the night being clear and the sea calm. Thirteen persons altogether saw her. At 10.45am, the ordinary seaman who had this morning reported the Flying Dutchman fell from the foretopmast cross-trees on the top gallant forecastle and was smashed to atoms. While the princes did not encounter any fatality, the sailor who had first reported the ghost vessel died after he fell from that topmast of the HMS Inconstant. This lent further credibility to the ominous sighting of the vessel amongst seafarers. The sighting of the Flying Dutchman can be found in the Admiralty's official publications in the cruise of HMS Bashante. Another incident saw a British vessel come very close to colliding with a so-called ghost ship on a stormy night in 1835 when the vessel was under full sail and it suddenly vanished. Stated the harbinger of death has been seen many times in the 19th and 20th centuries. It may have even been seen in the 21st century but just like many of the UFO sightings made by airplane pilots are either ignored or not reported by those who saw them, any sighting made in the current century may have suffered the same fate by those fearful of being seen as loopy by their employers and their friends and families. Its last reported sightings were made in 1939 and in 1941 during World War II. The 1939 incident occurred when a group of people near Table Bay in Cape Town, South Africa, reported seeing the ghost ship sailing towards the shore under full sail before disappearing very soon. And 1941 sighting was the last that we know of. German U-boat commander, the Nazi Admiral Karl Donitz, sighted the Dutchman during their voyage through the East Suez.
Very keen to hear from anyone who has seen any ghost ship, but especially the Flying Dutchman. Surely someone must have seen it since 1941. If you have, please do get in touch. I will keep your anonymity. Super fan of the podcast, Tracy from North London, has sent some information about a ghost car called Ghost Car 42. Thank you very much, Tracy, uh, for your continued contributions to the podcast. It is very much appreciated. 5th of May 1963 began as a great day for motor racing fans in Japan. The first Grand Prix in that country since the war was to be held at the very modern Suzuka circuit in Nagoya. But the favourite to win was Mashal Asano, who was driving a white Austin Healey numbered 42. The number given to the car surprised the crowd because 42 is the number that Japanese avoid if at all possible. I suppose it's like in some countries where 13 is considered an unlucky number. The Arabic numerals for 42 translate as Shi-ni, which is related to the Japanese word Shingu, meaning to die. But Asano dismissed the worries about the old superstition brought about but towards the end of the first lap, Asano took the lead. This, then he approached the final bend at 130 miles per hour. A tricky bend by all accounts. He lost control of the Austin Healey. It bounced across the track, ripped through the crash barriers and hurled into a ravine. By the time the officials got to the car, Asano was dead. The number 42 was banned on any vehicle racing in Japan. From then on. One year after the tragedy, 150,000 motor racing fans arrived at Suzuka again for Japan's second Grand Prix, which was a much larger event than the first one in the previous year. Two teams of spotters took up their position in the control tower. Spotters would check the running order of the cars, and every time one of them completed a circuit, and after the race, uh, they would compare their notes for reasons of accuracy. During this race, the spotters had no time to think, only to call out numbers on the cars as each one flashed by. But when they compared notes after the race, they discovered that a car with the number 42 had passed by in no fewer than 8 of the 25 laps. No one could describe the kind of car that it had been. They couldn't describe its, its driver. Had Marcel Azano returned to the course for one final race? James Dean was possibly one of the most famous actors in 1950s America. Sadly, as we know, he died in a car accident while driving between Los Angeles and Salinas near San Jose. Along the journey, Dean was stopped by a highwayman before speeding. Soon after getting ticketed, they, Dean in the sports car and Bill Hickman, who was following Dean, headed west on SR-166, Dash three three to avoid Bakersfield and the slow speed limit there. Whilst driving on Route four six six, Dean accelerated and left Hickman in the dust. Dean's car hit a Ford Tudor head-on as the Ford was crossing the road to get onto Route forty one. Dean's car hit the ground three times as it cartwheeled into a gully beside the road. Sadly, James Dean did not survive the accident, dying in the arms of his friend, Bill Hickman. 
So Alec Guinness had told James Dean as he left the restaurant in Los Angeles, please never get in that car. It is now 10 o'clock, Friday the 23rd of September 1955. If you get in that car, you will be found dead in it by this time next week. The crash happened the following Friday. Alec Guinness was correct. car, however, was repaired and brought back to life, being that its driver was an American cultural icon. George Barris, known then as the King of the Customizers, spelt with a K, took control of the car and sold parts of the vehicle to other drivers. The car was not happy about that, apparently. To McHenry was driving a car powered by the engine from James Dean's car, and he was killed when his vehicle went out of control and struck a tree in the first race in which the motor had been used since Dean's death. Another doctor, William F. Eshreed of Burbank, was injured in the same race when his car, containing the drivetrain from James Dean's car, rolled over, said a piece in George Barris's book Cars of the Stars. Apparently Eshreed had loaned McHenry the transmission from the Hollywood actor's car, as well as several other parts. Barris donated the car to the California Highway Patrol who went on to use it as a warning to reckless drivers. The car was not happy with that either. The car was stored in a garage which on the first night it was stored there burnt down. The fire, was com the fire completely destroyed the garage but caused no more damage to the car. Bad omens were starting to mount up. The chips continued to use the car to take it to high schools to be used as a visual aid for dangers of reckless driving. En route to one of the schools, the car broke loose from the truck that was towing it and crashed into another car coming the opposite way. The driver of the other car was killed in the accident. The police still took the car to schools and on one visit it fell onto a student breaking their leg. It had fallen off the trailer carrying it a total of three times now crushing a truck driver once as well as a school kid. Not only did the police have trouble with the car, but criminals did not have any luck with it as well. Thieves broke in and attempted to steal uh, blood-stained seats and a steering wheel from the car. They were left with some terrible injuries instead. In 1959, the car was temporarily stored in a garage in Fresno as it was a rating display as a safety exhibit in a coming sports and customs automobile show. It seems that the car did not like garages because just like before, that garage caught fire too. And again, just like before, hardly, hardly any other damage was done to the car. Where is that car now, I hear you say? Truth is, nobody knows. The car was out touring the USA for traffic safety exhibitions and was returning from one such event in Florida about 1960. It was being shipped back in a sealed boxcar and when the train arrived in Los Angeles, Barris signed the manifest and verified that the seal was intact. But the boxcar was empty. The car had simply disappeared and up to this recording has never been seen again. Do you know where that car might be? If so, let me know. Have you seen any ghost cars, phantom planes, spectral boats or apparitional trains? If so, please do get in touch and tell us your stories. Everyone who listens to this podcast would love to know. 
Thank you very much for listening. I will be back very, very soon with the next episode in this new season. Don't forget to check out and to become a member of our website, www.ufosandops.com. Check out the Facebook page and also our brand new shop. Remember, Christmas is coming. Speak to you all very soon. Bye-bye. Take care.